Hello, I'm Amber Athey, The Spectator's Washington editor, and I'm here to encourage you to subscribe to The Spectator's American edition. If you visit spectator.us forward slash subscribe, you can get our print and digital edition for just $7.99 a month. This means you get unlimited access to our amazing website and we'll send you a beautiful 80-page monthly magazine. You'll also have access to our mobile app. Subscribe now at spectator.us forward slash subscribe. You won't regret it. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and now the Joe Biden presidency. We will be looking at how a 78-year-old president will change America and we'll be asking if normalcy which is what he promised to bring, has returned to American politics? The answer, of course, is no. I'm joined today by Matthew Continetti, who is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And we're going to be asking if President Joe Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, is actually in charge of America. Matthew, I think next week, I think August 8th, uh, Ron Klain will celebrate his... 60th birthday and there's going to be a very very big bash a huge party that all of Washington aka the swamp is talking about can you tell us a little bit about it well sure Ron Klain uh, like many of us has a habit of throwing a larger party than usual whenever he hits a round numbered birthday so when he turned 50 years old in 2011 uh, he actually held a party uh, resembling a state fair uh, in a farm in uh, the state of Maryland where he invited uh, uh, hundreds of guests. And basically everybody who was anybody in the Obama administration, where Klain worked at the time, uh, attended. And there were corn dogs and um, rides and uh, apparently many tributes to the uh, birthday boy himself. So I find nothing wrong with throwing a big bash for your birthdays. Or I just hit a round-numbered birthday myself and had a, had a party with my friends. But as I read about Ron Klain's birthdays past and future in the New York Times, I was just struck at the disparity between the comfort uh, of Ron Klain's everyday life and the actual condition of the United States and the world today, which is, in my view, wanting. Yes. And it is a perfect example, his lifestyle, his career, in fact, is a perfect example of what Donald Trump called the swamp and what a lot of Americans find infuriating. That's right. Um, you know, I've been writing about Washington for a long time. And in the latter Obama administration, I spent a lot of time talking about exactly this, kind of the, the lobbying of Democratic politicos, power brokers, uh, people who have all the right opinions, uh, they are liberals, uh, they believe in equity and social justice, and yet uh, they do all this while making bank in Washington, D.C., and not really making money because they have any particular skills. Uh, I mean, they're all well-educated, they're all uh, well-degreed um, professionals, uh, but basically the way that you make money in Washington is by knowing the right people. And for Chief of Staff Ron Klain, his whole career has been about knowing the right people, including 
uh, knowing a certain man named Joe Biden, who became uh, the 46th president of the United States. Well, well, let's talk about that, actually, because he is now Biden's chief of staff. But they had a tricky moment, didn't they, considering they've worked together for a long time? That's right. Klain started working uh, with and around Biden in the late 1980s. And he's worked in every Democratic uh, presidential administration since Bill Clinton's. But uh, really, the only hiccup in his otherwise undisturbed ascent in Washington, D.C., happened in 2015, when he uh, hurriedly endorsed Hillary Clinton's presidential candidacy without letting Biden know first. And at that point, when Klain made this endorsement of Hillary Clinton, uh, Biden had not officially removed himself from contention for the 2016 Democratic presidential nomination. And this angered Biden. It especially, according to the New York Times, angered Dr. Biden, Dr. Jill Biden. And it led to a little bit of a breakup between Klain and the Biden, uh, Biden family. And for Klain, obviously, this was a uh, personal injury, uh, but it was also a potential financial injury. <laughs> because if you're frozen out of a White House or of a uh, former vice president's office, you're probably going to lose a lot of money. Now, fortunately for Klain, another friend of Biden's, another long-term associate of Biden's, uh, a White House counselor named uh, Steve Reschetti, patched things up after the 2016 election. And uh, Klain and Biden, of course, have been close ever since uh, to this day, where uh, Klain is the chief of staff. And Reschetti, as you as you mentioned in your piece, he's he's a bit swampy too himself because he's now the president's <laughs> counselor, and his brother I think is doing very well out of that connection. He is. Uh, so Steve Reschetti, the president's counselor, has a brother, Jeff Reschetti, a lobbyist whose firm I love. The name of the firm it's Reschetti Inc. And indeed, they make a lot of money there. And in, in fact, the Wall Street Journal reported last week that uh, lobbying fees. Uh, had quadrupled to the Reschetti firm since Joe Biden's election. And in that article, it was fascinating, in the Wall Street Journal, Jeff Reschetti said, I've no, I don't lobby my brother, I don't lobby the White House. This quarter, that is the financial quarter, the third quarter of 2021. And indeed, uh, so that, of course, made me raise my eyebrow. Uh, and I said, well, what about the first two quarters? And just today, actually, as we record this, CNBC reported that uh, Reschetti uh, had lobbied the National Security Council on behalf of his client, General Motors, earlier this year. So you see here, too, the uh, pecuniary advantages of, of having relationships not only with the president, but with uh, key figures in his orbit. Jeff Reschetti doesn't need to lobby his brother directly. There are thousands of other executive office uh, employees and uh, he seems to be doing very well um, with them. The, the chief B, to go back to, to the subject of this podcast, the chief B seems to be Ron Klain, the chief of staff, uh, who, because of Biden's, how should we put this, his age, let's say, he defers to Klain, or Klain seems to just be doing the organisational side of government and effectively sort of running Biden for him. That's definitely the argument that many Republicans are making. You know, it's hard to tell. I'm not there. But in my experience in Washington, presidents are in charge. So it's a tricky relationship. Even, say, Ronald Reagan, right, who was not the most attentive president. 
at the end of the day, he still made most of the major decisions. Now, there are the minor decisions that are often delegated, and it's, it's entirely possible that uh, Klain is running basically White House operations without much guidance or uh, even supervision uh, from President Biden. Nonetheless, uh, Republicans in Washington have taken to calling Klain Prime Minister Klain uh, because of his uh, outsized role in the operations of government. And that's probably with Biden's blessing. On the other hand, it means that a lot of power has been given to this influence peddler whose last paycheck from the investment company that he worked for uh, was $2 million in 2020. So he's, he's well off. And he's also very liberal. He, he, he loved appearing on MSNBC during the Trump presidency. He has a ferocious Twitter habit that continues to this day. And so when people who like to think of Joe Biden as, you know, the gentle, funny, uh, old dude who just wants everything to go back to normal, they have to recognize that the real power broker in the administration is a, is a pretty progressive liberal who is not exactly in touch with the country outside of the super zip in which he lives. Well, speaking of the super zip, the New York Times article to which you referred was written by Mark Leibovitz, who wrote a very famous and excellent book called This Town, about Obama-era Washington, really. And it was a sort of book that described the swamp before people started talking about the swamp and the, frankly, often pretty disgusting interchange between government and powerful business. And it seems to a lot of people now that this town, uh, in the Biden administration, this town is back, uh, almost back with a vengeance. Do you think that's the, tra- the case? Oh, I mean, uh, with a s- speed uh, that I did not anticipate. You know, we have this wonderful piece by Leibovitch in the New York Times about Ron Klain, which was the inspiration for my article. And uh, with, with Leibovitch, you know, he has to protect his sources. So sometimes you have to read between the lines of his pieces. And in truth, this profile of Klain was rather damning. But uh, because Leibovitch is such a talented writer and writes for the New York Times, he often kind of, I think, um, purposely has kind of a dry uh, prose style that the, those of us among the initiated uh, understand uh, is actually hilarious. And that's the case when you read uh, This Town as well as other of Mark's great pieces. But look, the, this piece just on Klain appeared last week and was the inspiration for my uh, column. Uh, and uh, in other news, then you had the Jeff Reschetti story that we already mentioned. Over the weekend, incidentally, this past weekend, Biden had played golf with Steve Reschetti, the lobbyist's brother, and Biden's own brother, Jimmy Biden, who is himself works for a uh, lobbying legal services firm in Florida that actually advertised um, the, his brother's relationship uh, with the president during inauguration in, in a solicitation for business. Then the day after that, we heard again in the New York Times that one of the uh, rankest lobbyists, uh, Democratic lobbyists in Washington, a man named Tony Podesta, who in fact had to dissolve his firm as a result of revelations from the Mueller investigation, if you can believe it. He is now back in business. And who is he repping? But Huawei the Chinese uh, telecom giant uh, that America is doing its best in order to to put in a cage because we're worried about the potential surveillance uh, infiltration of Huawei circuitry uh, in our own systems. 
Okay, so Tony Podesta is repping Huawei. And then there was another story about Anita Dunn, another counselor to the president, who is a highly compensated executive at SKD Knickerbocker, one of the major public affairs firms in this town. And uh, the article in the journal uh, discussed how Anita, uh, who I quite like personally, but nonetheless, she's, she's about to leave the White House to go back to her business. And in the article, they say, well, look, she's always just a phone call away. And of course, she's always just a phone call away. And the, the, who isn't? And the thing is, what are, what are the phone calls about? You know, I mean, I, I'm sure the phone calls are about communications advice in some cases or policy advice. Or, but they might also be about some of the many clients whose business SKD Knickerbocker represents. Now, they all say, oh, we never discuss this. We never discuss this. You know, the first thing I ask anybody, whether it's my relative or it's my friend, when I see them after a while, how's work going? That's the first question. And it just seems to me impossible that, these, that this content about what these various firms are doing does not come up in the midst of discussions with Joe Biden. And, and you haven't even mentioned uh, Hunter Biden yet. And well, I know. Well, as, as I said in my piece, I rarely mention Hunter just because I, he makes me so sad. I mean, you know, I, I, I feel sorry for the man uh, and for his dad. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, Hunter has had a terrible addiction problem and such. But uh, he also is, seems to be very good at figuring out ways to profit off of his, his genetic inheritance. And we, we went through all of the revelations from his laptop when we could, you know, find them in the New York Post during 2020. And now we find that he's engaged in this incredible scheme to sell artwork to anonymous donors who, uh, rather, well, I call them donors. Of course, they, they will be donors, but they're also, I guess, art buyers who he's nevertheless going to meet. So he's going to meet the potential buyers, but then we're actually not going to know who is paying what for these pieces of art. You can look them up online. They're fascinating. They're a combination of kind of a lava lamp and a Jackson Pollock painting and an acrylic. I mean, there's, they're not bad, actually. I mean, but the idea that somehow people are going to be paying for them on their aesthetic uh, criteria alone is to me absolutely laughable. And so that's, this, is, this is Hunter's latest scheme. It's actually so outrageous, as I said in my column, it's, it's so ridiculous that big tech isn't even censoring criticism of it. No one, no one here in Washington uh, thinks this is a good idea. And yet the Bidens are pressing with it anyway. Just wait until he hears about uh, NFTs. That could be... Um... <laughs> right, right, I want that right. No, that's next. <laughs> I wonder, though, it, I mean, the obvious, I suppose, typical Republican argument to make, but I think it, there may be quite a strong case for it, is that the reason Democrats get away with this brazen corruption, really, and it is corruption, I think, is that they are convinced they're the good guys and that what they're doing cannot possibly be wrong because they're on the right side of history and they're against the sinister conservatives and Republicans who want to take America back to, a, to its racist past and so on. I think there's something to that argument. You know, the moral certitude of, of uh, liberals in Washington is uh, awe-inspiring. And this is something that I wrote a lot about during Obama's second term, uh, which was just kind of the, um, uh, the, the clean consciences of these affluent, well-degreed, elites. They were so, uh, uh, their self-conception was so morally pure that they couldn't even begin to see the kind of the hypocrisy 
of making millions off of your connections while talking about social justice. This is a long-running phenomenon, you know, the term limousine liberal, right? I mean, it's, it's uh, half a century old uh, at this point. But it's, it's still, it never ceases to amaze. I mean, the other factor, of course, Freddie, is uh, the media, which is that the pieces like Leibovitch or the pieces on the lobbying in the Wall Street Journal and such, these are the rarities. And I commend the journalists for reporting them out. Uh, Ken Vogel of the New York Times, a friend and just an amazing journalist, no conservative, but he, he report, reported the Tony Batesta story, which to me is the most sickening thing I've read in a while. But, they, but they're, they're rarities. That's my, that's, that's my point. Um, there, obviously, there were similar scandals during the Trump years. And you read about them on the front pages every single day, right? But as soon as a Democratic administration comes into power, these pieces kind of are reduced in number and they're kind of tucked away on uh, page, you know, A17. Now, unfortunately for the liberals, I read the hard copies of the papers every day. <laughs> and, so, and so I never miss these stories because I purposely look for them and then try to publicize them. Well, and the, the key point, as you make in the piece, is that none of this is good for American governance. Um, the sort of the merry dance between the media corporations and politics in Washington means that they're completely blind to their failings. Uh, well, not completely blind, but, but blindsided quite often to rather catastrophic stuff going on in the country. Or even worse, they think they don't see it as catastrophic, which, which you know, I mean, that's what keeps me up at night. No, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, everyone in D.C. is very comfortable. You know, we have some of the richest counties in America, surround the nation's capital. Now, why is that? We have no natural resources here. Uh, we have a river. It's not a very impressive river, actually, the Potomac River. That's it. We don't have farm. The farms, you have to go about, uh, you know, about 20 miles away, 45-minute drive in our traffic to get to the farms. No. Well, why are we rich? We're rich because we're the most educated part of the country. We have the highest numbers of degrees, and we have the um, largest government contracts. And you recall that the howls of fury uh, that erupted from the bureaucracy when the Trump administration flirted with kind of moving some parts of the federal apparatus into the interior of the country. You had all these, <laughs> all of these uh, very well-off civil servants, who, you know, who enjoy the quality of life in the, the metro area here around Washington. Uh, they could not, for the life of them, contemplate life in, say, Nebraska or Oklahoma City. You know, this was horrifying to them. So life is very good here in Washington. Uh, we're very wealthy. Uh, we have great restaurants. And uh, this, I think, kind of anesthetizes us to uh, the actual outcomes of liberal policies, which are visited upon people very far away. The southern border, for instance, which is in the midst of an incredible surge of illegal immigration. That is very far away from Washington, D.C., and indeed, at the end of the day, most of the people who live here are fine with illegal labor because it, it costs less and you might not have to pay taxes on it. Afghanistan, where uh, the Taliban is uh, going to take over, uh, it seems to me, rather, rather quickly, it's very far away. Um, and indeed, of course, most Americans aren't that worried about Afghanistan either. Inflation, inflation, for example. Well, if you make $2 million a year, you know, inflation is going to be annoying, but it's not really going to be a, you know, break the bank situation. For most people, 
uh, most consumers, most Americans, inflation is very real. And, uh, you know, what is interesting, though, is crime, finally. Crime is spiking in America. It was just yesterday that the former Senator Barbara Boxer, an impeccable liberal, just one of the, one of the most limousine liberals of liberals, she was mugged in Oakland violently. She's a grandmother. And, and you know her first response? It was to say, well, she funded community programs, community service programs. <laughs> As though the mugger, oh, well, oh, I, won't, I won't rob you now. Stop right you know? there. Yeah. Stop right there. <laughs> so maybe then the reality principle is, is uh, applying itself uh, finally, but I, I rather doubt it. Well, Matthew, we better end it there. But thank you so much for joining us. I know you haven't been invited to the big party, the big plane. <laughs> no, it, 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 the invitation must be lost in the mail, Freddie. Well, po- possibly, possibly. Or, or let, but let's hope Mark Leibovitz gets in and then we can have more of this sort of fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review.